You're listening to messages from Cuyahoga Valley Church in Brunswick, Ohio. If you're looking for more resources or want to get in touch, head to our website at www.cvcbrunswick.org. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to your day and help you experience new life in Christ. Good morning. My name is Melody Campbell, and I'm going to read Ruth chapter 3 for you. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So then she went to the, down to the, th- the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the women came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Oops. It's a cliffhanger. (laughs) Stay tuned next week. (laughs) She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Thank you, Melody, for reading our passage. Aaron, for playing alongside. Appreciate it. Uh, hi again. <laughs> uh, this was not the plan. <laughs> As I alluded to earlier in our service, uh, I was supposed to preach this morning. We had somebody else on schedule to worship uh, who late last night well, was not able to be here. Uh, and as some of you know, we've got some other... Uh, difficult situations right now in other staff members' lives, other volunteers' lives. It's been a messy week, uh, filled with a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. Uh, 
Yeah, it's been messy. But thankfully, God is at work in the mess. Sorry. That, I'm going to try to cut down on that ring. Here we go. So I'm not going to try to be fancy or really get in with anything. Uh, if you haven't already, turn to Ruth chapter 3. Uh, that's where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. We have a lot of ground to cover and a lot of cultural barriers that we need to talk about if we're going to understand this text because our culture is very different than the Israelite culture. Uh, you know, thousands of years later, a lot of things have changed, and it's important for us to have an understanding of what's going on. So at the beginning of chapter 3, right, we see Naomi start to break out of the paralysis of her bitterness. We've heard earlier, call me Mara, for the Lord has, I came, I went away full, I came back empty. The Lord has brought me back empty. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Our herbs up here as a representation of that. But now she's thinking about what comes next, enough to start making a plan. And she starts with the rhetorical question, should I not seek rest for you? Naomi felt the responsibility to make sure that Ruth is provided for because Naomi is aging. And the situation that she described back to Ruth in chapter one, if you remember it, is still the reality that they live in. There are no additional sons that she has to marry Ruth off to. And even if Naomi were to get married and conceive that day, the opportunity for Ruth to rest in that son, in that marriage, would be over by the time it was possible. And this is the first cultural barrier that we need to navigate in order to understand this text because Naomi is pointing Ruth to a bit of a melding of a few practices instructed by God in the Torah. God cares for his people, and he made uh, certain allowances and provisions within his law to take care of those who might be marginalized and oppressed, the vulnerable and the needy, and specifically those financially stuck in poverty and widows who were left with no children to take care of them and a husband to provide and protect them. And God's care for these people is expressed through his provision of what we call a kinsman redeemer. So we're going to jump and take a look at a few passages that talk about that. Uh, we're going to be a little all over the place today, but hopefully we'll tie it all in here at the end. Beginning in Leviticus 25, verse 47, it says, If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you, or to a member of the stranger's clan, after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself." Right, this passage describes a situation where a family member is unable to provide for themselves and they sell themselves into slavery as a result. But an allotment is made where a family member can pull them out of that situation. They can purchase them out of slavery. They can redeem them. Uh, the same uh, also happens with land. And we also see the practice of a kinsman redeemer in a different way in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It reads, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, excuse me, if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, 
Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who has had his sandal pulled off. It's an interesting text. (laughs) That's messy. (laughs) Very messy situation, right? The situation describes a widow with no children, and God's instruction for his people was for the deceased man's brother to go to the widow and provide her with a child to carry on the family name of his dead brother and to provide and protect the widow. What we're also shown explicitly here in Deuteronomy 25 is that it did not always happen. And that the response to it not happening was one of deep shame towards the man who failed to perform these duties. And I think collectively, again, we can, we can say that situation sounds very messy. There's a lot of hurt, a lot of agenda, a lot of strife, a lot of awkwardness. But thankfully, God is at work in the mess. And this sets the table for us to carry on in Ruth Because this is something Naomi knows and is pointing Ruth towards. And in her plans here, she is seeking the land to be restored to the names of her husband and and sons, but also that Ruth would be married and find rest. And the word for rest that's used here in verse 1 is the Hebrew word, and I'm sorry I'm going to slaughter the pronunciation of this, any Hebrew scholars in the room, manavak. And at this point, I need to remind you This phrase is going to be a little, I'm hoping, familiar for you at the end of the day. That Ruth is written in a literally beautiful, masterful, and poetic way. Because when we read this word, rest, we're meant as the readers to immediately begin connecting it back to the last time that we heard it. We're meant to see this connection. And the last time that we heard it was in Ruth chapter 1, verse 9. Naomi prays, the Lord grant that you may find rest, Ruth and Orpah, each of you in the house of her husband. And as we look at these two side by side, we should be beginning to ask the questions. Naomi prayed and asked God for this. And now she is taking actions to bring it into fruition. Is she in violation of how God would do this? Is God working here? Because there's a very conspicuous absence in her plan. And that is God is not listed there. There is no apparent wisdom, guidance, uh, Nothing. It seems as though God is not there. And it's messy. So we're going to get into it in a minute. Naomi's plan is messy. But thankfully, even when we cannot see it, God's hand is at work in the mess. And we're meant to ask, is this Naomi's plan? Or is this God's plan? Because when we read the actual plan that Naomi has made, we need to acknowledge this is a very odd plan. Uh, If one of your children were to come up to you and say, Mom, Dad, there's this girl that, you know, I'm I'm really hoping she'll like me, so I'm going to go and, you know, try to to make myself desirable. Uh, You would not tell them to do this, right? Let's look at verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak. Go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. The first part sounds decent, right? If if a high schooler comes to you and is like, I've got somebody I'm interested in. Well, first you should shower, right? Don't be gross. (laughs) But 
the rest of these instructions, is, as it moves into the halfway point, are very suspect. Right? She starts, freshen up, wash yourself, dress nice, do these things. Go down to the winnowing floor in the middle of the night. Wait until Boaz has had plenty to eat and drink. Then lie beside him. Uncover his feet, and he will tell you what to do. Now, I suspect that this is why Pastor Josh uh, assigned me to teach out of Ruth 3. Because in case nobody picked up on it, there is a lot of sexual tension in this passage. It is filled with language that's meant to make us very uncomfortable with what's going on. I do want to clarify now, Ruth 3 makes it absolutely clear that Ruth and Boaz do not take any sexual actions. Boaz, immediately after their interaction, says that Ruth is a righteous woman. But the phrases that are used here are meant to make us highly aware and sensitive to the danger that they are in. Because this plan is shady. It makes no sense, right? Why are Naomi and Ruth initiating the kinsman redeemer? Right? You didn't see that as the process uh, listed in the law. Why is Ruth going down in darkness and cover of night to do what should be done in public? Right? We see that happening to the el- with the elders at the gate and instead go down in darkness to the winnowing floor where sexual misconduct was known to happen. It was the end of the harvest and often prostitutes would come. It was a place known for sexual misdeeds and immorality. And that's where Ruth goes. This is a messy story. And this is also problematic because it could end in disaster. Imagine where this could go. Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night. He's had a little something to drink and he sees this beautiful young woman lying at his feet. And like many of the other young men around him, decides to take advantage of her. What if she went and laid beside another woman? What if together they did not refrain from temptation in this highly tense situation? What if Boaz were offended by her forwardness and said, depart from me, get out of here, do not come close to me? What if the townspeople saw her and began to gossip and slander the names of Ruth and Boaz? It is a messy situation with serious consequences. But once again, we can take heart because we will see that God is at work in the mess. Scripture builds upon itself. It uses stories and references to continue to build on previous stories that inform us of what we are to believe about God and the world. And in my opinion, to fully understand Ruth and the story that's being told here, we need to have an understanding of another story in Scripture that I'm very excited uh, because it's, it's a crazy story, but also very nervous about because it is a crazy story. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. Because we need to hear the story of Tamar. I won't lean too far into Ruth chapter 4 here, but after some of the occurrences, I don't want to steal from next week's sermon. In in Ruth 4.12, the elders tell Boaz, May your house be like the house of Perez, born of Tamar. There's positive things that they're referencing here. Uh, The house of Perez was noted for being fruitful. They had many children. Uh, Tamar is actually Boaz's great-great-grandmother, as we're going to see later on. But there is a severely negative context. So let's read Genesis chapter 38. 
It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. This is important. Shua is the name of the Canaanite and not the daughter. We don't get her name. He took her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chizib when she bore him. Judah gets married to a foreign woman, has three sons. Verse 6. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name, we get her name, her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, the third son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Tamar goes back to her father's land to live as a widow until Judah provides a grown Shelah to marry her off to. He's afraid, though, of losing Shelah, the third son, because now not only would Ur's line end, Judah's line would end as well. In verse 12, we read, in the course of time, meaning significant seasons has passed, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to a name which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. She sees that she is not being treated justly. So she's made a plan. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. She had dressed like a prostitute. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand, personal belongings that would clearly identify Judah. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Don't need to explain much there. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at a name on the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. 
by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give my, her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is not the passage that you'll be teaching in Sunday school next week. This passage ends sounding eerily similar to another story filled with drama and sin and family conflict, the birth of Esau and Jacob. It is a messy story. But this is the family that the elders tell Boaz that they hope his is like. They're not saying that they hope his family is filled with immorality, but the negative context is there, and Boaz knows the story of his family. When we read chapter 3 and we begin to hit some of the phrases and situations of Ruth's story, the story of Tamar is meant to be ringing alarm bells in our head. I've heard this story before, and it did not end well. Like Tamar, Ruth is in need of the provision of a kinsman redeemer. Like Tamar, this need has gone unfulfilled for a long time. Like Tamar, God's presence in the story as a character is largely, seemingly absent Like Tamar, Naomi decides to make a plan without clear direction or instruction from God. Like Tamar, Ruth goes to a place known for its sexual immorality to put the plan into motion. And as a reader who's familiar with other stories of what has happened throughout Israel's history, we should be asking, is Ruth about to end up like Tamar? But more importantly, where is God? Where is God in the midst of all of the mess that's happening here? Is he absent? Has he forgotten them? Is he neglecting them? So let's read on. In Ruth 3, she goes down to the threshing floor in verse 6 and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her to. She uncovers his feet. She lies down beside him and waits. And you're holding your breath along with her in anticipation of what might happen. Boaz wakes up startled and asks, who is there? Ruth responds, but then she does something of great importance. If you notice, Naomi's instructions were, do whatever Boaz tells you to do. But here, in verse 9, Ruth tells Boaz what to do. She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And how great is that? After All that has led up to this, she breaks from her previous instruction, and whether by divine appointment or involvement or intuition, she asks Boaz, spread your wings over me. Right, to spread your wings also gets translated spread your cloak, right, using the garment to reach out. But the image is that of a mother hen, right, reaching out and gathering the chicks. And under her wings there is protection. In her arms there is provision. She calls to Boaz and asks for his provision and protection. And in the middle of a dangerous situation full of temptation, she does not act or behave in a sexually immoral way. Instead, she asks him for his hand 
in marriage. She chooses righteousness and appeals to Boaz's righteousness to be her redeemer. Again, I want to remind you, the Ruth is a book written in a beautifully majestic and poetic way. And I want to direct your attention for a split second back to Ruth chapter 2. After Boaz shows the deep kindness to Ruth of providing the grain for her, she asks him, why have I found favor in your eyes? And he responds in verse two, or chapter 2, verse 11, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the, day, since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And how beautiful is that? Ruth, in chapter 2, when she asks Boaz why she's found favor in his sight, he makes the connection that his kindness is the Lord's kindness to her, that his generosity is the Lord's generosity. So here, when Ruth reaches out to Boaz and asks for him to spread his wings over her, she's not just asking for him to spread his wings over her, she's appealing to him for God to spread his wings over her as well. Because she's identified that God can protect and provide for her through Boaz's protection and provision. Where Boaz is providing for her, God is spreading his wings over her. Because God's protection and God's provision, God's work in humanity is not often a magic hand reaching down from the sky and moving things. Instead, it's often through the work of his people. Through him guiding and directing. Let's try this one. Ooh, that's loud. Right, so where Boaz is providing for Ruth, where she asks for Boaz to provide for her, she's realized that God is providing for her through Boaz. Right, and, and we can ask, right, is Boaz providing or is God providing? Yes. Is this happening as a result of Naomi's actions or Ruth's actions or God's actions? Yes. The situation is a mess filled with temptation, uh, parallels to stories filled with sin. It's been brought about as a result of sin, right? Tamar bore children through whom Boaz would come, and here he is in the story. So the situation is a mess, but God is at work in the middle of the mess, God has provided a way for his redemption for Ruth through Boaz. God brings about a way of redemption. And this is where the book of Ruth beautifully fits in with the rest of Scripture. Because mankind is messy. It is enslaved to sin, rife with immorality. Stories like Tamar are completely common in the past of humanity and in the present. Mankind exchanged the righteousness of God for a lie, and instead, wickedness runs rampant throughout all of our history. The Old Testament is filled with examples of men like David, who repeatedly, even despite their righteousness, 
would face a test and they all fail. They all falter. We are together enslaved to sin, having sold ourselves off to a foreign master, owing a debt we cannot afford to pay. Our master's heart is not for us. We've forsaken the inheritance of God's provision for us and instead chosen to live in death, to live in sin. And who will set us free? Maybe you're sitting here this morning in the middle of a mess. And maybe you have a story that is filled with immorality and hurt. Maybe you entered a relationship with all the good intentions of Ruth, but you and your significant other did not refrain from temptation. Maybe you're a liar. Maybe you have stolen. You've caused deep pain and wounds in others with your words and your hurt. Maybe you're the child of a broken home still struggling under the weight of the choices of your parents. Maybe you're still dealing with the wounds caused by other people. And you're sitting here this morning feeling the shame and the burdens of your past choices, your sin, other people's choices and sin, and wondering, how can God make use of my life when I have made such a mess of it? I want to comfort your heart this morning with a simple truth that God is at work in the mess of humanity and God is at work in the mess of your life. It is of no small importance that the genealogy is traced at the end of this book because Tamar is Boaz's great-great-grandmother. But Ruth, through Ruth, comes the direct line to King David. Ruth is the great-great-grandmother of King David. And through King David comes the line to the king of kings. God brought the line from whom he would bring his son through people and circumstances that were messy, that had no merit, right? One of the other women listed in the genealogy, Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. Tamar, who dressed like a prostitute, seduced her father-in-law after he and his three sons treated her shamefully. Ruth, a Moabite woman whose family had endured extreme heartache and loss. And these are the great, great grandmothers of Jesus Christ. These are the stories from whom he brought his son into the world. The book of Ruth starts with a phrase in chapter one, if you remember it, in the days of the judges, which if you've forgotten, were terrible days. <laughs> People did, as, as it's said repeatedly in that book, what was right in their own eyes. There were days when lawlessness and corruption happened frequently. And when the people of God constantly turned away from their God and pursued other gods. Ruth is written in the middle of a season where it was hard to see what God's hand was doing. In Ruth's own story, it's hard to see what God's hand is doing. We don't see God doing a lot. Right? As a character, we don't see, and God did this, and God did that. It's largely absent. And it's easy for us to wonder, is God there? What is he doing? How could God be working when it is so messy? Ruth, Rahab, Tamar, the Israelites, they are all messy and filled with sin. How can God be doing something in that? Because through these stories and the ones that followed, God brought his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And Jesus took on flesh 
and walked the earth, walking among the mess. And in order to cleanse us of that mess, he bled and died on the cross. And in doing that, God spread his wings over us and provided a redeemer. God is at work in the mess of humanity even when you cannot see it. And God is at work in the mess of your life even when you cannot see it. 1 Corinthians 1 says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God does not need people to be perfect to use them. Which is a wonderful truth because outside of Jesus Christ, there are no perfect people. Your mistakes, your family situation, even your sinful choices do not prohibit God from using you for the glory of his name. God redeemed Paul, the author of that text that we just read. One who had murdered members of the only church, murdered servants of God. And redeemed him and used him as perhaps the most effective missionary in history. Why not use someone else? Why not take control of Paul's life there and not have him do these things? Because God demonstrated his wisdom and his strength through the foolishness and weakness of using someone messy like Paul. And God is demonstrating his wisdom and his strength through the foolishness and weakness of using people like us. So take heart. If you're here today living in the shame of your mess, know that God can and does work in the middle of it. If you have unrepentant sin, don't live in the paralysis of shame. Romans 1 tells us godly grief leads us to repentance. So repent and thank God and joy for his faithfulness to you, that he has redeemed you, that he can forgive you of your sin, that he is gracious to you. God can use even the messiness of our lives to bring about something that is beautiful and glorifying to him. Ruth 3 ends with Boaz joyfully responding to Ruth's proposition. But due to the presence of a closer relative, he must handle business with that man first. We're going to get into that next week. So he sends Ruth back to Naomi with instructions to be cautious that the townspeople might not see and think sinfulness has occurred. They wouldn't talk about this. And I have one more big thing that I want to point out for us. In verse 17, after Boaz, after Boaz sends Ruth back, he's told her he will take care of things. She's giving an account of what has happened to Naomi. And he gives her six measures of grain. And she tells Naomi, you, or he tells Ruth, you must not go back empty-handed. And I want to remind you one more time that Ruth is a book written in a literally beautiful and poetic way. And this phrase should sound familiar to you. Let's look back to our first chapter, if it's not already up there. Ruth 1, 21. After all of the loss that Naomi endured, she says, I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. And these phrases are, in Hebrew are the same. Empty-handed, lacking, without. Where God once claimed that God, or Naomi once claimed God had sent her empty-handed. God, through Boaz, has provided both her and Ruth with an over abundant supply, and they are filled with the provision of God. 
God has given above and beyond that which they could think or ask for. The amount that Boaz gives to Ruth is uh, six measures, and measures can be a, a vague thing, right? Measures describes any measurement. The point is, Ruth received six of them. Where they were previously lacking, God provided an overabundance. When God redeems us and spreads his wings over us, he provides for us in a way that is overly abundant. This does not mean that our lives are filled with physical possessions, but that our lives are filled with the deepest of purpose, joy, and fulfillment because we have been redeemed and restored and made right with God. God does not leave us empty-handed. So Christian, I pray that your heart is encouraged this morning, that it brings peace to your heart to know that God has redeemed and restored you and that even in the middle of the mess that surrounds us and that we ourselves sometimes participate in, he is working. For those of you who don't know Christ, I pray that your heart hears the message of hope that Jesus Christ bears. You might be consumed by the mess, unable to see a way out, but Jesus Christ offers to wash you clean of your sins, to make you whole, to make you new, and to make you right with God. So praise God that he doesn't just work around us and our mess, but even through it is bringing about his purposes, which are for our good and his glory. What the enemy intends for evil, God works for good. The things in your life, the broken situations, the sinful choices, the hurt and the pain from others or yourself that the enemy wants to use for evil, God can redeem. And praise God that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, he has freed us from our sins and our lives can be redeemed. He calls us sons and daughters. He calls us his bride. He has redeemed us. He set us free from our slavery and called us to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you for your redemption, for your goodness, your faithfulness to us. And Lord, you are kind, generous. Lord, I thank you that even in the midst of a messy weekend where it seems like so many things have gone wrong, hurt and pain others are enduring, uh, wrong choices that people have made, you are still working something that is good, that is glorifying to you. And if it is glorifying to you, then we can say that it is truly for our good. So help us to trust in you. Help us to rely on you. Help us to rest in your arms. Your wings are redeemer. Again, help us to trust you when it's hard to see what you're doing. Lord, it can be, it can be so hard to understand what you're doing. Help us not to, to scan your work in vain. And I thank you for the promise that you are your own interpreter. It is you who understands your ways, you who understands your motives, and you will make it plain. Lord, we long for that day. We long for the day where the mess is forever removed. It is not even a memory. We spend eternity uh, praising your name, exalting you for the wondrous God that you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening, friends. If you want to talk about anything that you've heard today, don't hesitate to reach out. You can find contact information and further teaching series on our website at www.cvcbrunswick.org.